0: like you to open your Bibles this evening. We'll start in the book of John. We're going to spend most of our time this, not tonight in the book of Hebrews, but let's start in the book of John. What a wonderful book. Love the book of John. Love them all. We really love the book of John because the book of John lays out so clearly that Jesus is not only a great man, but he was the Son of God. He was the Word made flesh. Uh, you know, it, this time of year we have to Be the light that shows that Jesus was more than just a nice guy. Jesus was more than a social revolutionary. Jesus was more than a political leader. Jesus was none of those things, if not first and foremost the Son of God who brought us a new covenant. He was not crucified. We talked about this in men's meeting. People like to say he was crucified because he had some radical ideas. I'll tell you why he was crucified because he had to be crucified for you. The Bible says in Isaiah, it was the Father's good pleasure to crush Him. That's a tough scripture to hear. Father wanted to? No, it was His pleasure. It pleased Him because of you. Because He loved you so much that He sent His Son. Because if it had been, and we talked about this on Monday night, but if it had been... All about the Jews being mad at Jesus or the Romans being mad at Jesus. Let me tell you something. They would have killed him a long time before that. They tried to kill him. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. It was not about somebody getting so mad they finally took his life. It was about him being the Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God, laying down his life for us. Thank God. Thank God for that. And this Christmas, this season is a wonderful time to tell people, you know, it, we're not just celebrating a great man. We're not just celebrating a wonderful prophet. We're not just celebrating the founder of a religion. We are celebrating the Son of God, the Word made flesh. We're celebrating the dawn of a new and wonderful covenant. We're celebrating the dawn of grace. Hallelujah, isn't it wonderful? Before we go any further into the Word, I just want to say right up front, um, we, I'm sure everyone in this room is fine with this little fact. The world's not going to end tomorrow. We're good. It is so crazy that this little thing's gone so far, hasn't it? That a civilization which routinely sacrificed human beings and could not foresee their own demise, somehow predicted the end of the world. How nuts is that? I mean, like, it's, it's, it's insulting to us that we're talking about this right now. But I feel like i got to mention it because I've heard it so much. You know why I think that so many people think about this? We have a knowledge inside of ourselves that this isn't permanent. He set eternity in our hearts. We know that this is fleeting. It's going away. As the Scripture reminds us, all flesh is like Grass. It says the earth will fade away, the earth will perish, the heavens and the earth will pass away, but his word will not. There's a knowledge inside every human being, somewhere hidden in there, just like people have, a, have, a, have a pre-programmed in there to want to worship something. In the same sense, we know this is not permanent. We have that knowledge. And so people try to look for, for some sort of definition as to why or when that's going to happen. The only definition you have is from God himself who created the world, who created you and made a plan so that you wouldn't have to perish with the world. Wonderful thing. The other thing is this, and I know that we've, um, we were all shocked and horrified at some of the things that happened in Newtown, Connecticut. It's a terrible thing, and it's, it's hard to even imagine, wrap your mind around. Um, I just want to say I think we have enough news to pray. You don't need any more news. You, you don't need to know anything else. You know enough right now to be able to act on it. You know enough to pray. If God told you to do anything besides pray, you know enough to do that. We, we need to turn off the news. We need to turn off these things because what it leads to is a morbid curiosity that feeds on either grief or some sort of curiosity, fascination with, with murder and those kind of things. You need to turn it off and say, I know enough. I don't need to fill my mind and my heart with these things. I need to pray for these people. There, it doesn't mean you don't do anything about it or you ignore it. It just means you have to train your mind, you have to discipline yourself to shut the TV off, stop looking at the f- articles on the internet, and just say, I know enough. I don't, need, I don't need to wake up and go to sleep thinking about what drove somebody to such a horrible thing because we know the great need is Jesus. Yes. Now, there may be some other things that need to be done in society. I understand that. Uh, that doesn't mean that sh- laws shouldn't be passed. It doesn't mean those other things. But I'm talking about right now, you know all you need to know. You don't need to know more details about how those children were killed. You don't need to more n- know more details about that, that, that young man and, and what his life was like. You know enough to pray. As believers, we have to discipline our mind not to dwell on those things, not to become fascinated with those things. Even with the supernatural, um, you know, we, we see Jesus cast out evil spirits. We see the apostles do it. I believe believers today should know and be confident enough to cast out evil spirits. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, there, were, there have been plenty of believers, there have been a few, I should say, that have made a, 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 a ministry out of it, and there's nothing wrong with a ministry, but I have made almost an entertainment industry out of it, um, where people almost become... They, they want the demon to manifest. They want to see somebody freak out and do something weird. And can I tell you, there's nothing good about that. Jesus said to the evil spirits, he said, shut up. And he cast them out. He didn't say, put on a show for us. You know what? That show does nothing but destroy the person who's being used at the time. We don't give them a place. What does the devil want? The devil wants attention. Quit giving it to him. And so we shut those things off, and we we say, no, I discipline myself to think on what is good. You know, there are shows out there that focus on things like serial killers, and you can be so fascinated with that, you need to turn it off. Because you don't need to wake up and go to sleep thinking about what makes a serial killer tick. That's not healthy for you. (laughs) And so I'm sorry, most of you probably already feel that way, but I just need to say it, because I... You get on social media, you get talking around people, and it is a topic that comes a lot, and I understand it was a horrible event, and I'm not saying we sweep it under the carpet. We need to do something about it. We can pray. We can act. If there's different things you need to do to act, if you need to send money, if you need to do something else, that's fine, but you got all the news you need to do that, I think. I think you got all the info you need. Turn it off and just say, all right, this isn't doing me any more good. It's not doing the the victims any more good. Let's instead focus on what God's doing about the situation. Amen. Now, let's turn to the book of John. John chapter 1 opens in great fanfare. I love the openings of all these New Testament books, don't you? I love the openings. You may say, "Well, what in the world do you love about the book of Matthew? Opening up with names. You know what I love about the book of Matthew, opening up with those names? Hebrew genealogy always named men. Never went named women. But the book of Matthew names four women. Not all of the women, but four of them. And they're not four (laughs) all-stars. You've got a prostitute. You've got two prostitutes, actually. You've got a prostitute. You've got a woman who uh, tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. Uh, You've got um, (laughs) a, a Gentile who wouldn't have even been allowed to worship in the in in the synagogue who who was adopted in the family. That's a wonderful thing, but it's kind of weird that she was in the good old Hebrew genealogy. And you have somebody who's not even quite named. She's named in my Bible, but in the original Greek, it just says the wife of Uriah, who was Bathsheba. You have the lady who cheated on her husband with the king. So of all the four women to name, (laughs) why do you name these four? Well, maybe he did it just to show something, that Jesus didn't need a perfect family Jesus brought what was imperfect and made it perfect. Jesus um, came to save the ones who fell short of the glory of God. Jesus came to save the, save the messed up and the sinful and, and the ones who needed him the most. So maybe that's a point out of that book of Matthew. So you don't read it just boringly. There's some really cool stuff in there. There's a guy in there in the book of Matthew's genealogy. Matthew's genealogy was Joseph's genealogy. So this was not Jesus' hereditary genealogy. It was there for one reason, to show that he was of the royal line. Because he'd been adopted into Joseph family. That means he had, through adoption, been placed into a royal line where he had the rights of a son of David, um, a direct descendant of David. Um, so it's interesting in, in that genealogy there's a guy called Econiah, a spell spelled with a J, that actually God said to him, You're, I'm going to curse your line. No king will ever come from your line. And he's in the genealogy of Jesus. (laughs) But the thing was, it was not Jesus' natural genealogy. This was not his natural son. It was an adoption. And so even in all of that, I'm sorry, some of you are getting bored already. But even in all of that, you see that I love the beginnings of all of them because they have something to say right at the beginning. And the book of John starts out with such a wonderful start. You know, the book of John doesn't tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. But it does tell us about the beginning. It tells us that Jesus, in fact, it focuses on the fact that before there was ever a baby squealing in a barn or a a back of a house or whatever you believe that stable to be, before there was ever a baby born, Jesus was from the beginning. It says this in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Oh, I wish I had brought a Bible. I have a certain Bible. Uh, a translation that was uh, written in the, uh, around the turn of the uh, 20th century. and Not 20th to 21st, but 19th to 20th. And it's just wonderful because it, it, shows, it shows something that I never realized, that most likely this first little bit was almost a call and response song. So sometime I'll bring it to you, and the way it breaks it up, he'd say, in the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was was God. He was in the beginning with God would be the thing that the crowd would respond. It's just a wonderful thing. Another topic for another time. But he says in verse 3, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Thank God. This is the message of the gospel. We were separated from life. When man died, man died in the garden. That's when we all died. Death didn't have to do with when your organs shut down. Death had to do when you were separated from life. God is life. And here it says, in Him, as in, in Jesus, the word was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Now, do you have His life in you? If you do, that life is your light. And that light will shine in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Another translation says the darkness did not overpower it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John and came as a witness to testify about the light so that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. Now this is the great message of, the, of Christmas time. Is a great message of this se- season is that the word became flesh. So much of the New Testament talks about things that, it talks about the Old Testament in fact. The Old Testament is brought up a lot in the New Testament. And one of the things that the New Testament says a lot about the Old is that it was types and shadows of what was to come. Colossians says that we can argue about all these little things, the feasts and the Sabbaths and the new moons. He says, but all all those things are forms and shadows, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so the great thing here is all the shadows of the Old Testament became reality in the New Testament. It may be controversial to say this, but Judaism was all about Jesus, which is why it was so crazy when the Pharisees rejected him. Everything they believed was about Jesus. That was why they killed a lamb. That was why they did those sacrifices. It was why they did everything they did. It was why they, they, I mean, why in the world would you rub lamb's blood over your door and an angel of death would go past? In what world does that make sense? Unless it was to symbolize something unless it was symbolizing something that was to come. The founder of the Jewish nation and the Jewish faith, some might say that Moses began it. In a sense, Moses, with the law, began something. But it goes even back to to Abraham. They said we're sons of Abraham. The founder of it, the Bible says that Abraham was not saved because he was a good man. Abraham was saved because he had faith and that faith was counted to him it was credited to his account as righteousness well why would faith help him faith helped him because the Bible says Jesus said Abraham saw my day he saw my day and he rejoiced so from the founding of the Jewish nation their founder was looking at Jesus when Moses gave the law it was pointing to Jesus When He raised up the serpent in the desert and they looked on it, and the serpent was on a tree. The Bible says that serpent was symbolizing the curse and the tree. The Bible says everything that hangs on a tree is cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.13 says Jesus fulfilled that. That's why He hung on a tree. That's why they didn't behead Him. That's why they didn't stab Him in the heart. He had to hang on a tree to symbolize that He became a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So when they looked at that serpent they were looking at what Jesus would do for us so you see the beginnings of the whole thing are all about Jesus every prophet talked about Jesus they didn't say his name but they called him the Messiah they talked about the Messiah they talked about the one who is to come the Redeemer the Savior that he was prophesied from the beginning And here's the great thing. The Bible says in 1 Peter that they made careful inquiries searching to know who this was that the Spirit of Christ in them. Get that. He says there was a Spirit of Christ in them telling them to say what they said. And they said as soon as they said it they're like, who is this guy? I know for those of you who've ever had a prophetic word for those of you who ever heard something from God, you were supposed to tell it to somebody. Do you ever have that moment where you said it and then you say, what did I just say? How did I just say that? Bridget, you ever had that? Where you just go, what in the world did I just say? I hope somebody wrote that down. Well, they, Jeremiah had Baruch follow him around. Baruch, write this down. I'll Take dictation. Boom, 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 boom. What did I say, Baruch? All right, this is what you said, Jeremiah. So they, they hear this and they, they say what they know, but they don't know everything. They only know what they're told to say. They only know what God told them, right? So they, they, they say this, and then they go, who is this guy? Let's, they start flipping in their books. They start trying to find out who and where and when is he coming. And it says it was revealed to us in these last days that they were prophesying for your benefit. Isn't that awesome? And it says the things they're prophesying about for our benefit are things in which angels... Long to look into. Prophets were jealous of you. Angels are jealous of you. Nice. <laughs> but all of that, the word, was not just a word. It became flesh. Now, we know that the eternal things are the unseen things. The unseen things are far more real. But let's be honest. As human beings, we take something to be more real when we can touch it. Right? We take something to be more real because we see it and we can touch it. That's not necessarily faith. (laughs) The scripture tells us, Jesus said, blessed is he who believes when he has not seen. But God was good enough to us not just to leave it up to our imagination to figure out what he's like, but to make the word into flesh, to bring Jesus into the world to show us God. We saw his glory. See that? We saw it. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Another place that says we handled, we touched. Isn't that wonderful? We handled Him. We touched it. Verse 15, John testified about Him who cried out, and cried out, saying, This is was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we've all received, not of His partial uh, blessing, not of part of Him, not of a little bit of Him, we have received of his fullness. Of his fullness, we have all received. And grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized. I love that word realized. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Enough wacky people talking about the end of the world. You know, there is, we know the end of the world's coming. We may not know the day, we know it's coming but you think about the end of the world and all of this, but you realize that around this time, there really was a sense when Jesus came that the world as we knew it ended. The world as we knew it ended. the, The thing that had defined the world up to that point had been Adam's sin. Adam's sin did not just affect the world, it defined it. Animals were affected by the curse. Plants affected by the curse. Every human being on the planet affected by the curse. The earth itself burdened with the weight of sin. And that's why the earth won't last forever. We did that to the earth. And it wasn't simply through pollution. We did it through sin. Thank God Jesus redeemed us. And He's making a new heaven and a new earth. And in all that It's wonderful to know that the world, in a sense, when Jesus came, the world as they knew it, which was defined by that sin, that disconnect from God, was ending. Jesus was bringing a new covenant, not between God and the Israelites only, but to God and man. He is the new mediator between God and man. He brought a new covenant to all of us. One of the things that God promised to Abraham that didn't make sense until Jesus came was that He would be a blessing to all nations. In Him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That He'd be the Father, not of just one nation, but of many. Isn't that wonderful? We're the realization of that. Jesus brought a new covenant of grace and truth both coming together in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to the book of Hebrew Hebrews, because it was written to more than one of them. Hebrews chapter eight. We, a couple of years ago, went through the book of Hebrews in great detail, and we may do that again. Um, So much truth hidden in it to it. You almost feel like you're not doing it justice just by skimming. Um, It's such a wonderful contrast between what was good and what is better, Uh, what is good and what is perfect. It starts out by talking about how angels are great, (laughs) but Jesus is better. It starts out talking about how uh, the old covenant was great, but the new covenant is better. It talks about how the old high priests were good, but Jesus is perfect. About how their reign was short and temporary, but his is forever. About how Mount Sinai might have been awesome, but Mount Zion is better. And uh, it's wonderful. So in chapter 8, he says this in verse 4 Now if he were on the earth it's talking about Jesus he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things So all they were doing all those sacrifices all those rituals were just copies and shadows of something greater and more permanent Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So what Moses built, what Moses uh, was told to design, because realize there wasn't a tabernacle until Moses built one. There wasn't a temple uh, before that. And so when Moses built a tabernacle, he didn't just say, all right, guys, let's make a big tent. It's got to be big enough to have lots of people come in one part. Only a few come in another part. And only one coming in another part. You think we can do that? We can do that. We got the talent. We got the skills. No, he came and had an exact pattern. Now, those of you who are leaders know that some people don't like that. They can't see the pattern. They want to know, why can't we do it this way? And sometimes you can't tell them exactly the reasons why everything needs to be that way. But Moses heard from God. And sometimes that's what you just got to say. Heard from God. It's got to be that way. And Moses had, has saw a pattern And that pattern was based on something. That pattern had a heavenly pattern. It was something that existed in the heavenlies. Not that there was a big tent in heaven, but that everything he did was according to a heavenly pattern of something far more permanent than the temporary thing he was doing. So he created this thing. He told them to build it just according to what he saw on the mountain. God laid it out perfectly. And everything in that tabernacle had a purpose. And if we had lots of time, we would go over everything, but we don't. In verse 6, but now he has obtained, this is Jesus, he is our high priest, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. What does a mediator mean? A mediator is someone who stands in between, right? Mediator means he's the one that makes sure it happens. He's the one, he is the guarantee of the treaty. He's the one that stands between you and God and says, I'm the, I'm the guarantee that this thing goes through. I'm the mediator. It depends on me, not on you. Here he says he's the mediator of a better covenant, thank God, which has been acted, enacted on better promises. Doesn't, isn't it cool that it doesn't just say uh, a better covenant, which has some new and improved rules. It says it's been enacted on better promises. What does that tell you? This covenant has more to do with him than it does with us. We didn't make any better promises to Him. We didn't say, okay, this time. This time. I know before, like, we weren't allowed to make any graven images. This time we won't even think about them. You know, last time we did that. No, we didn't make any better promises to God. We couldn't even keep the ones before. We're in no position to make new ones. We didn't do too well with the old ones. If anything... If God were making his covenant depending on us, he would have lowered his standards and said, fine, you guys can't live up to your deal. I'm doing less for you. But instead, he makes better promises. Isn't that wonderful? And those promises, thank God, the Bible says in 2 Peter that those promises are the means of by which you can inherit and be part of and be a partaker of a heavenly, divine nature. It says, in that way, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need to be like Jesus, he's given us through his promises. Not based on our promises, based on his. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Which means, if the old covenant was perfect, if it's not broke, you don't fix it, right? That's just common sense. So the Old Covenant was broken. Uh-oh. The Bible tells us in another place that the law being made by God was perfect. It was perfect. So why, did, why was there a fault if it was perfect? Well, I'll give you a hint. The fault wasn't on God's end. The imperfection wasn't on his end. He wasn't the problem. We were. Oops. He says, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Verse 8 says this for finding fault with them, (laughs) not with himself, not with the covenant, but with them, people. He says, Behold, days are coming. So, all right, all right, all right, before we go any further, if the fault was with people, If the fault was us, if we were the problem, in order to make a better covenant, what do you think really had to change? We're the problem, right? <laughs> He's not the problem, we're the issue. So when Jesus came, he didn't just fix a he didn't fix a broken set of rules, he fixed you. He changed you. He made you a different person. He cleansed you. He gave you his righteousness instead of your own. He stood in the gap for you. He he became what you couldn't be. He shed his blood for you so you could be clean when you were never clean. He fixed us. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And you go, oh, no, I'm left out of that. No, you're not. Because the Bible says that through his blood, we become heirs according to the promise. That we get joined into the family. He used the example of an olive branch, an olive tree. And he says we're that wild branch that got grafted in and became part of the same tree. We received a spirit of adoption. We became the heirs of the covenant through faith so that we might receive the inheritance, the promises that God gave to Abraham. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it kind of weird to look in your Bible and read a promise to Israel and go, that's for me too? And I don't even have a yarmulke, but I get to be part of that? (laughs) Isn't that cool? He says this, I will affect. I will. I'm going to do something that's going to change everything. I love, and the scripture says in Isaiah, it talks about, It talks about all this injustice and all this unrighteousness. And it says, when God looked around and saw that there was no one to save, he himself raised up with his right arm. He brought up his shield and he did something about it. When we couldn't save ourselves, a Savior came. That's one of the reasons that the the angels talked about it, the Old Testament prophets talked about it. But one of the first things that Jesus was called, in fact, his name meant salvation. One of the first things that Jesus was ever called was a savior, a rescuer, someone who was coming in to fix it. Someone who was coming in to snatch us out of death and bring us into life. It says, he, I will effect a new covenant. Jesus brought that. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the beginning of something. Well, you might say, didn't the new covenant start on the cross and the resurrection? Absolutely, that was imperative. That was a big part. But even when Jesus came, there was a beginning of something wonderful. When he walked the earth, there was something about him that was different. Yes, he fulfilled the law. But he also, it says, grace and truth were realized through Jesus. John goes on to say, no one in that first chapter, no one has seen God. But Christ Jesus, he has explained him to us. He showed us what God looked like. Colossians says he was the in, image of the invisible God, the express image. Jesus says to his disciples, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I've said this before. But he didn't say, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father's nice side. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father's hippie side. He says, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He wouldn't have said that if there was more to God than Jesus showed us. Because then the disciple, then he would have said to the disciples, if you've seen me, you, you get a gist of what God's like. No, no, he said, you have seen the Father. In other words, there's nothing more to see. You have seen him. When we know what Jesus was like, we find out what God's like. And I shouldn't just say what Jesus was like, what he is like. Just thank God didn't just start, stop in the Gospels. We see him all through the New Testament culminating in the book of Revelation, you see him show up a little bit different than when he first came to earth. You see him a little bit scarier maybe. <laughs> but he's still got those, that same love, that same uh, strength, that same saving power. Except now he's the risen Christ, fully exalted, with a name higher than any other name, seated at the right hand of God, ruling, seated at the, the, the right hand of God until all his enemies be made a footstool under his feet says this. He's going to effect a new covenant. Verse 9 says this. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Why is it not going to be like that? For they did not continue my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I'll put them there. And laws sometimes is a tough word uh, because then we sometimes jolt ourselves back just like the Galatians did. Jolt ourselves back into saying, well, do I have to live like a, a an old covenant uh, Israelite? Do I have to live under that law? No, no, this is His laws, His ways. He'll put His ways on your mind so you know right from wrong. You know what to do. You, you have them engraved on your mind. I imagine... Uh, A lot of that has to do with the fact that the mind gets washed by the word. He'll put it on your mind, but you have to play a part and let your mind be renewed according to the word of God. Your mind's going to have to change, and that's part of the new covenant. That's a good deal for us. I'll put my laws into their minds, and I will write them. When he talks about write, it's like engraving. It's like a tattoo right on your heart. I will engrave them on their hearts. I'll write them on their hearts. I love that, because the law to so many people without the Spirit of God became nothing more than an outward ritual, something you just did on the outside. But as believers, He's done something to us. He's transformed something in us. He's made us new so that His ways become like our nature, become the things that we desire to do, become the things that become part of us. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and and everyone his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This became so real, even in a natural sense. Um, Not long after this letter was written, something happened in Jerusalem. Not long after this letter was written, you know, a few years later. We don't know exactly when the book of Hebrews was written. But in in the year 70, uh, there was a complete destruction of Jerusalem, just like Jesus said there would be. He said, this temple won't remain. He said, these these walls will be torn down. There will just be nothing but rubble. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. It wasn't supposed to happen that way, according to the Romans. The Romans was not in their best interest to destroy everything. They wanted to keep the Jews happy, uh, but the Jews had gotten more angry and angrier, and, and a fellow convinced there are certain things that kind of signaled that a red flags were coming. And one of the things was one of the, one of these guys convinced the high priest to stop offering sacrifices on behalf of Caesar. Not they weren't making sacrifices to Caesar, but they were sacrificing to Yahweh, Jehovah, on behalf of Caesar, saying, well, we pray that he does well. Those things star- stopped. There was more and more unrest stopped, and th- there eventually was a revolt. And when Jerusalem finally was taken over, there, was a lot, there weren't a lot of common citizens left. They were mostly leaders of the rebellion, a lot of crooks and stuff, too. And when, when Titus, who was Vespasian's son, uh, would later become, his, he became leader of the troops when his dad, Dispa- Vespasian, became emperor, And he'd later become emperor also. But when he was leading the siege against Jerusalem, he said, you know, leave the temple alone. We don't want to, we want that to remain. Something happened. They had set some fire to some buildings, and the fire spread. And when the fire started to spread to the temple, the gold that was in between the the stones began to melt, and the soldiers saw that and go, jackpot. Uh, We need some of that. And, you know, when soldiers have been camped around a city for so long, you've made them wait. You've made them uncomfortable. They've been laying siege to a city. They tend to be quite restless when they take over and quite angry, and they were, they they're hard to control at that point. There's been some horrible atrocities committed in war once a city is taken over by soldiers who just are out of control. And these soldiers began to to just you know totally destroy the temple. It was burned and destroyed. They removed. Jesus said there wouldn't be one stone left upon another, and true enough, they removed every stone. Well. I say all that to say this. That was the last time some of those temple uh, rituals took place. Uh, That was the end of uh, things like animal sacrifice. That was the end of, in a lot of ways, the Levitical priesthood. A lot of that ended right there. And uh, the book of Hebrews is a warning. It's it's an encouragement. It's also a warning. This isn't going to be around forever. The book of Hebrews says things like, if you neglect the sacrifice that Jesus made, There won't remain for you another one. So when he says this, 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 I say that to help you understand this verse. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This all began with Jesus. Jesus did not come to rebel against the old covenant. He came to fulfill it. But he brought a new covenant. The Bible says you don't pour new wine into an old wineskin. When Jesus brought a new covenant, the old one was ready to go away. And sure enough, it did. We all stand, every person on the planet, the Bible says, and I I believe that God has has a special plan for Israel. I believe that very strongly. I believe it's in the Word. However, I know that the Bible also says in Christ there's no Jew nor Greek. Jesus is for everybody. It's for everybody. He is the way of the Father, and you can't get to the Father without Him. He said that. So as a believer, we got put into the same family. Jesus said, we were reading this in men's group on Monday night. Jesus said when he was talking to them, he said, there will be a day. He says, right now I call my own sheep. They come out. I lead them. They know know my voice. I know their names. I lead them in and out, and they find pasture, and they're saved. He said, but there's going to be a day when I call sheep that are not of this fold, and I call them together, and they will be part of one flock with one shepherd. And that was when he was talking about us Gentiles. He brought us into one flock with one shepherd. And wonderful as it is, he says there's a new covenant that covenant was realized was brought to us through jesus christ it changed the whole world guys for all intents and purposes the world as we knew it ended when jesus hit the planet something changed we got to realize how big of an event this was god said i will not always be angry with you the reason god was angry we think of the word angry as uh, as coming from an angry person you know we think that angry people get angry but in the sense that we're talking about God, God is love. God is perfect. So why is the word angry mentioned in the same sentence? That anger was justice. He's holy, and sin and holiness don't go together. And God's justice, there was always, because He's holy, there always had to be justice. Not because He didn't love, because, guys, because He loved. He made laws and rituals so that those who were unjust and unclean could cover themselves and still go into the presence of God, who could atone for their sins. What a wonderful God. And he had this plan from the beginning to bring not a temporary, but a permanent solution to the sins of the people. And that was Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, God's mercy and God's justice, as it says in the book of Psalms, justice and mercy have kissed. In Jesus Christ, they met. God was fully just. Some people think when we talk about the new covenant, they think that all of a sudden God is okay with sin. I'm going to tell you, He never became okay with sin. That's why He punished it severely in Jesus Christ. He punished sin. He did not go easy on Jesus. And that was our fault. Our sin did that to Jesus. God didn't just say, right, "Yeah, no, I don't really care anymore. I was too hard on you. Now his justice remains un, unaltered, unbent, undamaged. His holiness is still the same. The only thing that's changed is you. And what changed about you is that Jesus took your sin, and put it. God put it on Jesus. He fully took it. He was fully punished for it. There was no loopholes. There was no shirking the system. There was nothing. That, that made it easier on Jesus. He drank the full cup. And if we, like we said last service, he said to God, if there's any way I don't have to drink this cup, please let it go by. Even Jesus knew what that would entail. He said, but not my will, but yours be done. He drank it all. and The cup he offered to us was not that cup of wrath that he had to drink. The cup he offered to us, he showed on that last supper, he gave him a cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. This is the cup you get to drink. You get to drink the benefits of all I did. You get to drink the new covenant. See, I drank your cup, you get to drink mine. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Savior. He says, and, and, and it says this new covenant is come And the old one is becoming obsolete. It says in verse 8, the Holy Spirit, uh, verse 8 of chapter 9, we'll just skip ahead. There's so many good stuff in between, but time is an issue. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered So this is talking about the Old Testament animal sacrifices. It says, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Can't do it. The Old Testament could never make you perfect. It was good. We don't need to bash the Old Covenant to make the New brighter. The New is so good that we can say the Old was good, but the New is perfect. The Old was great because guess what, guys? If you didn't have the Covenant, you couldn't go into the presence of God like they did. You didn't have the covenant. They had a good deal. The Israelites who were under that old covenant got to draw near to God, got to see his glory. We sang that song that started out with talking about seeing his glory as Moses did. Who I mean, Moses experienced something that was outside of just the old covenant. He, he experienced some, some grace as well because he got to see what nobody else saw. But you realize that the old covenant. the old covenant israelites there they they had their sins atoned that's a good deal god was with them he guided them he took them by the hand that's a good deal but the new covenant is better because the old could never make you perfect in conscience says this since they relate only to food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until a time of what reformation this is not talking about Martin Luther Reformation. This is talking about Jesus Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, do you, when did he appear as a high priest? Not when he was a baby. He appeared as a high priest when he went up to be with the Father and sat at his right hand. But when he walked the earth, there were hints of that, weren't they? I mean, where did he get the right to say your sins are forgiven? Right? He said things like your sins are to forgive He said another place in John, he said the ruler of this world has been judged, has been judged. In other words, in his mind, it's already been done. He spoke of things in the future right then. He spoke of, he spoke of things post-cross, pre-cross, as cool as that is. Even John the Baptist, as we said before, was baptizing people for remission of sins. Where would you get that, John? that you can dunk somebody in the water long enough and their sins go away? That's not in the law of Moses. But God did that so they'd be ready for Jesus because He said, I'm going to send the prophet, I'm going to send the spirit of Elijah, and He will return the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the children back to the fathers so a way he might be prepared for the Lord. God did that. And what He did in temporary there, He did permanently through Jesus. And it says this, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. In other words, not temporary. Verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once. For who? For all. Having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption, as you know, means to buy you back eternally. He doesn't have to keep doing it. He's done it. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more, which is something you hear a lot in this book, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Thank God. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, that's us, may receive the promise, may receive the promise, the promise of the eternal inheritance. Thank God. May receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Jesus changed the world. She's changed everything. The world as we know it, knew it, as they knew it, ended. When Jesus came onto the planet and showed them something they'd never seen. Showed them God. The word became flesh. All those shadows. All those symbols and shadows became real became flesh. The things we'd only never been able to see became flesh. We handled it. We touched it, they said. It changed everything. And we know that there's another coming to come. But right now we live in this wonderful age where everything has been made new in us. Now he'll make all things new as far as the heavens and the earth. Revelation chapter 21 I mean, moves me so much when I read it. I read what, it, in fact, let me just, it's, it's off topic. Are you okay with that? It's a bit off topic, but oh my goodness. If you read it like it is, you see, you see that, yeah, there will be an end of the world, but as many people read the book of Revelation as a book of doom and gloom, they're reading it wrong. Uh, there, are, there is some bad, there's some stuff, you know. It's not all posies and flowers. I mean, it is stuff, but it's a merciful God. You see, if God just wanted to purge the earth, he could do it just like that. There's a reason there were stages of things, because he's merciful, merciful, merciful. And with each thing, somebody's gonna, he's going to get somebody's attention. He's merciful and patient towards them that they would repent. But chapter 21, which is chapter 22 is beautiful as well. Chapter 21, <sighs> I'm sorry, it's just so good. Yeah, I shouldn't say sorry, right? I'm okay. He says this. I heard a loud voice from the throne, verse 3, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like what we just read. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. First things have passed away. You see, just as the old covenant passed away, there, all this other stuff will pass away too. The Bible says the last enemy to be defeated is death. Death has been defeated in your life already. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Wow. And he said, Write these things, for the words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He overcomes, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all their liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is second death. But look at this. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. (laughs) Did you know you're in there? Oh, what a wonderful thing. I I look forward to that day so much. Uh, Oh, the angel said to John, John got a peek. What's weird is he gets to see, but he's also part of that bride. When Jesus says, I'm going to make everything new. I'll wipe every tear. Death will be done. There'll be no more crying, no more pain. And then he says, come, let me show you my bride. And he takes him to the new Jerusalem. The book of Revelation ends with hope. The world changed when Jesus came. and It never was the same again. Life has been made available to us because the word became flesh. Remember, the word in him was life. That life was the light of men. That word became flesh and dwelt among us. It became part of us. and God's promise to to be Emmanuel, God, not just above us, not just around us, not just on us, but with us, became reality in Jesus Christ. And God is with you. God is in you. When you've received Jesus, His Spirit came into you and you became one with Him adopted into the family, and you cried out, Abba, Father, Daddy. What a wonderful thing. The world, as we know it, has, has been forever altered and forever changed. Jesus brought us a new covenant. And I love to think about that this, this time of year because we think about a baby being born, we think about shepherds, we think about wise men. But Jesus was born for a reason. He was not just an ordinary baby who became a great man. He was a baby who was sent. He was, he's not, I mean, he was sent first as a baby. He had to be born. But he was sent with a mission to show us the Father. The Scripture says he was manifested to destroy the works of the evil one. He was sent to die. From the moment that baby was born, he had a destiny on the cross. 33 years later. That becomes a little bit weird as I near that age. Not weird, just unusual to think about. I always thought of Jesus being so old. He wasn't that much older than me. Younger than most of the people in this room. He finished his course. He came what he was sent to do. He didn't ask for more time. He did exactly what he's here to do. So when people think about Christmas and what it's all about, live, let Christmas be, let Christmas be under the shadow of the resurrection. Never separate Jesus' birth with Jesus' purpose. Never separate the coming of Jesus with the coming of a brand new covenant. Because that's what it's all about. It's not just about a nice guy being born. It's about the world changing forever. We've been made new. Guys, it is is just like we say in the the song, just like we celebrate, go tell it on the mountain. We've been made proclaimers of the new covenant. The Bible calls us ministers of reconciliation. What a great title. Don't you think it's the opposite of that, to go hold up signs at, at funerals and tell people how much God hates them? Don't you think that's the opposite of what he calls us? Ministers of reconciliation. Which means your job is to say, come back. God has made a way for you to come to life, for you to be brought back to life. Let me tell you about the covenant we have. Let me tell you about the end of the world, the end of the old covenant, which made way for the new covenant.